So Jesus, please teach us from that passage of Scripture and help us be more focused on you throughout our week. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, hello. Great to see all of you. Growing up, my grandparents lived on a farm, and they had this huge riding lawnmower. It was actually more like a tractor because they had so much yard. And, and when I was around eight, my brother and I were driving this thing around, mowing the lawn, and there was this tree stump that was sunk into the middle of the grass. And I didn't want to hit it. So as I was driving this lawnmower, I just kept looking at that tree stump and looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. And guess what happened? The tractor tractor thing just sort of drifted over to the tree stump and the lawnmower got stuck on top of it. It made this terrible noise and, and smoke came out. My grandfather came out of the house yelling this incredibly in creative flow of words. I'm pretty sure it's where my love of literature began because there was like gerunds and adjectives and all, nouns flying all over the place. And, and it ended in a particular phrase aimed at me, which I can't repeat in church, but it broke several of the commandments and ended with the word knothead, <laughs> which I'm sure to you sounds a little harsh to your city ears, but in eastern Washington, that's how we say I love you. So <laughs> felt very warm. And, and in that moment, I sort of realized, learned a lesson uh, that my buddy Mike Cowerton talks about in his new book, The Ride of Your Life. Where you look is where you go. You know, driving down the road and you see a wreck and you look at it. What happens? The car just starts to drift in that direction. Where you look is where you go. Works that way in life as well. Think about temptation. I will not eat the cookie. I will not eat the cookie. Ooh, the cookie, the cookie. Okay, just one. Because that's what you're looking at, right? Or, 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 or if you get focused on, on hurts from the past, you get bitter because that's what you're looking on, so your heart sort of goes there. Or if you get focused on material things and success that begins to define your life, you get to kind of bitter or envious of what other people have that you don't. Or if you dwell on your problems, you get depressed. The book Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of the Christian life, and one of the places the main character goes to is called the Slough of Despond. Isn't that a great name? Right? Like, oh, I got all these problems. I'm just going to sink into the Slough of Despond. Right? Maybe that's how some of you felt last week watching the Super Bowl. I have to mention it because I made such a big deal of it. So, so you know, I'm just going to sink into the Slough of Despond. No, 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 no. I actually have a lot of hope. See, where you look is where you go. So I'm looking ahead. We're a great team. We're going to win next year. It's not working, is it? It's, it's too soon, too soon. And, and, let me, I'm just going to keep going. And, I got an amen over there at the end of this. So, and, spring training is about to start, and the Mariners are going to go to the World Series. Okay? Yes. All right. Thank you over here. There's some faith. There's some hope over here. Thank you. The sisters over here, they've got it. Okay? Uh, you know, we only missed the playoffs by one game last year. We're going to the World Series. And yes, I know that two weeks ago I predicted that we would also win the Super Bowl this year. What you need to understand, biblically speaking, is prophecy is not an exact art. So <laughs> what I actually meant was we're going to win the Super Bowl that culminates the 2015 season, which, by the way, is next year a way better Super Bowl to win because it's number 50. Now, that's a real number, right? Like... 49. Who cares about Super Bowl 49? Let the Patriots have that. We're going to win Super Bowl 50, all right? There you go. You feel better, don't you? Where you look is where you go. See? You feel better. Last week after the game, my wife and I said, well, at least we have all this food that we can eat because 
we do this stupid thing called sugar-free January, but now it's full-on fat February, so we're, <laughs> that's where we're focused, because where you look is where you go. So what are you focused on? Successaholism, workaholism, more and more material stuff, how you look compared to someone else. Where are you looking? Because that's where you're going. We're doing a sermon series on habits that help us grow spiritually and emotionally. And one of the things people who grow do is they look at the right things, things that bring life, things that give wholeness, which is what the writer of the psalm talks about in the psalm we just read, where the writer says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. That is, he's, all, he's a mess emotionally. Why? Because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what is he looking at? What other people have that he thinks he doesn't, comparing himself financially. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're thinner, better looking. They have more hair. They are not plagued by human ills. Well, that's not true. But that's what happens when we look at anything other than God. Our, we, our perspective gets distorted. He's talking about basically that jerk at work that nobody likes but gets the promotion anyway, that neighbor who's flaunting her new sports car that's just kind of getting under your skin. And then he says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Man, I've been going to church. I've been tithing. What good is it, God? Their Instagram life is way better than my Instagram life. They have, I don't, I'm left out, which is a lot of our narrative, isn't it? But then midway through the psalm, there's this turn in the psalm. And it shows us what we need to look at in order to grow spiritually and emotionally. And last week, Rich talked about praying up, in, and out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use similar language, but a little bit different. And the first place that we have to look in order to grow is up to Jesus. The psalmist says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. See, in that moment, he looks away from himself, his wants, his issue, his agenda, his problems, and puts his eyes on God. And then notice what happens. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin, those people that he was envying. Now, that makes God sound kind of angry, but I'm not, I don't think that's quite what the psalmist is getting at. I think what he's getting at is, look, the way God set up the world is you can't be focused only on yourself, only on getting ahead, only on material things, only, only, and, and, and not face some consequences sooner or later. You're going to trash relationships. You're going to end up stressed out from all your striving. And when he looks to God, the lies he's been believing about what he doesn't have and all that, those lies get unmasked when he looks at God. But even more important, notice what happens to the pronouns. All the way up to this point in the psalm, God has been third person, he, 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 distant. But here God becomes you, personal, close. The spiritual training exercise we, we use to look up is called worship, both what we do here on Sunday, but also what we do on our own when we pray and whatnot. And worship is supposed to help us enter God's presence so that instead of thinking about God, we actually start to deal with God and relate to God. Presbyterians are good at thinking about God, but worship is when we relate with God. And in the psalm, four things happen to this writer. First is he sees the truth about himself. He gets a bigger perspective. He experiences God's grace and he reorders his loves. Let me kind of walk through to show how that happens. He says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Now, to do something in vain means the purpose you did it for had no effect. So basically, he's saying, you know, for instance, I preached to no effect in vain because they all fell asleep, just as a hypothetical example. 
But he's basically saying, man, my career is a mess. I'm still single. I got financial issues. I have followed God in vain because the purpose of following God is God's job is to make me happy and I'm not happy, so God hasn't done his job. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound good, does it? And in that moment, he's sort of forced to admit that his motives are self-centered. Another word might be self-focused. In other words, he's looking at himself, his problems, his issues. And since where you look is where you go, he ends up in the slew of despond. But the shock of seeing that truth about himself sort of motivates him to go into the sanctuary so that he can get God's bigger perspective. It's like being on a hike and you climb to a vantage point and you can see where you've been and where you're going and that reorients you. The world's view of things hammers at us day in, day out, and in worship, the music, the message, all is meant to remind us how big God is so that we can see the bigger picture and encounter God's love and God's grace, which is bigger than our problems or our sins. The psalmist says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was a brute beast before you. Anyone ever behaved like a beast in front of God or others, right? He's like, he's throwing this big old fit. In other words, I've been a real jerk, God, but the next word is so important. Yet, I'm always with you. you. You hold me by my right hand. That is, no matter how much I mess up, no matter how beastly I get, God, you never give up. You never give up on me. And when he walked into that temple, he would have seen an altar that was caked with blood. Because the way they worshipped was a priest would put the sins, symbolically put the sins of the people on an animal, then kill the animal as a sign that your sins had been forgiven. And it was, it was meant to be graphic in order to drive the point home. You are forgiven. And which, all of which, of course, points to Jesus on the cross paying the price for our sins. And that's important because, you know, sometimes when bad things happen, we think, man, maybe it's because I'm being punished. I deserve this. No. Where you look is where you go. So don't look at your failures. Look at the cross that says, no, you are forgiven. Or sometimes in hard times we think, man, God just doesn't care. No, 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 no. Look at the cross. God himself lost a son. God himself suffered and died. That's how much he cares about you, to forgive you, to set you free. He cares. And then the last thing the psalmist experiences is he reorders his loves. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He goes from being miserable to having joy because instead of looking at his problems, he looks at God and gets that bigger perspective. And God's love is the only thing that you can't lose even if you mess up, no matter how much you mess up. And even if you die, God's love gets better because you're with him. And if that's what you love more than anything else, you're invincible to despair because the most precious thing you have can never be taken away from you. Worship is meant. Worship is whenever, not here, just here, but whenever our truth meets God's truth, we get his bigger perspective, experience his grace, and reorder our loves. Now, we don't always think of it that way, right? We're, a lot of times we're not even trained to do it that way. Sometimes we just kind of come and just kind of routine or ritual. Some people, you know, they, they go home and they have brunch and their favorite brunch food is roast preacher, right? You know, which is fine if that's what you want to do, but that's not worship. That's critique, and that's fine. You can send me your emails, but it doesn't really help us do those four things, right? Or you hear the word church or worship, a lot of people think, oh, man, that's just boring, Someone just told me about a kid whose family went to a lot of sporting events, and then they started coming to church, and little boy at one point was getting impatient with the sermon, so he looked at his mom and he said, is it halftime yet? 
which maybe, you know, maybe sermons should come with like maybe a seventh inning stretch. You get up, you sing something, and then whatever, right? That is a lot of our image. It's just boring. But worship really is whenever we get out of ourselves into God's bigger perspective. Two weeks ago, after the Seahawks beat the Packers, I said, that game will preach. Remember that game? (laughs) Wasn't that an awesome game, man? That was a great game. Uh, Here's the thing. If you are walking with Jesus and looking up, defeat preaches just as well as victory. This from Russell Wilson. Win or lose, for me it's about him. It doesn't matter the ups, the downs, the good, the bad. Just keep him first. That's worship. What's he looking at? Jesus, eyes are on him. Or look at this picture. A lot of you know he goes to Children's Hospital every Tuesday to cheer up kids that are in a lot of pain. This Tuesday was no different. Super Bowl on Sunday, Children's Hospital on Tuesday, just like always. Because even though this is his career, right, as it turns out, there are more important things than a Super Bowl, more important things than career or money or anything else. There's a bigger world and a bigger God out there. And those kids sure look happy to see him. Do you think they care what the score was on Sunday? And I got to believe it gives him some comfort to have that bigger perspective. Where you look is where you go. So he's not looking backward at Sunday. He's looking up to his Savior and Lord and out to the people he can love. That's worship. And worship is more than what we do here. You can, you can be in the mountains and worship. You can pray on your own. But we also need to be here, you know, to, to be with God's people, to hear music that gets past our intellectual defenses and opens up our hearts to hear God's word that challenges our culture's worldview. So when you're here, man, I just encourage you to, to sing. And think as you sing, think about the words of those songs. Sing them to God. When someone is praying up here, you know, kind of engage with that. Follow along. Just say in your mind, yes, Lord, when you want to claim something for your life. As you come in, pray, Jesus, today, help me hear, feel, think. Do what you want me to do. Take seriously the fact that Jesus is in this room. He lives in us, but he's also in this room, and he wants to engage with us. First four words of the Bible are some of the most important. In the beginning, God. It doesn't say in the beginning you. It doesn't say in the beginning me. It doesn't say in the beginning money or career or title. In the beginning, God. And worship is when we get out of ourselves into God's bigger perspective. The poet John Keats wrote a famous poem called Ode on a Grecian Urn. And the last line says, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all you need to know. And when I taught, I would read that to my students, and they'd always go, oh, wow, man, that is so deep. Wow. Not really. I mean, it's a poem about a vase. How deep can it be, right? (laughs) Like, no. here's Here's what will really change your life. In the beginning, God, and in the end, always Jesus. That's all you need to know. Look up. And when we look up, and engage with Jesus and experience him, it becomes easier to look in the second place that we need to look in order to grow, and that is to look out to others. And the spiritual training exercise for this is called service. After the psalmist looks up, he says, Surely you place them on slippery ground. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. And he's seeing that all of our possessions, all of our titles, it all is gone in the end anyway. But then he says, But you will take me into glory. And in that moment, he's starting to realize, maybe I shouldn't envy these people. They've they've, they've built their life on sinking sand. Maybe I shouldn't envy them. Maybe I should have compassion. 
And service is indispensable for growing, in part because it gets us out of ourselves into God's bigger rescue mission, like that Russell Wilson picture, which just helps us get out of our own stuff. But also, when we are part of Jesus' rescue mission, we have to rely on him to do things that we can't do on our own, and that forces us to grow. Look up, look out, and finally, look ahead to who God is making you. Not what God is making you, CEO, doctor, not, not who, your character. Right now, every day, you are becoming who you are going to be, which I find to be a very sort of sobering sentence. Where are you looking? Because that's where you're going. What's your character? What's happening to it? My grandfather, not the one with the riding lawnmower, he was my step-grandfather, but my biological grandfather, not a very good man. He was abusive, then abandoned my grandmother with six kids, leaving them in severe poverty, only to resurface decades later after all the kids were grown. Not really a very good guy. Well, he always wanted to be a big deal, be admired and all of that. And one of the ways he tried to do that was to trace our ancestry, hoping he'd find something impressive in, the, in our background to, to brag about. Now, the problem was, of course, like he wasn't all that great of a guy. His dad, my great-grandfather, had been, spent time in prison, so Dudley's weren't giving him a lot of great material to work with, right? But, but he went all the way back to the 1500s and claims, not sure it's true, but he claimed that we were related to Lady Jane Grey, who was married to a guy named... Guilford Dudley, and they were king and queen of England for nine days. That's our claim to fame. (laughs) There's just one little problem with that, however. There was a reason they were only on the throne for nine days. They usurped it, so they were executed for treason. But it gets so much worse than that, because Guilford's father was also executed for treason, as was his grandfather. Three generations of Dudleys prompting Queen Elizabeth I to say, Dudleys have ever been traitors and heretics fit only for the scaffold. That's your pastor's family tree. (laughs) Right? Like, the other service clapped too. You're all like, we love traitorous heretics for our pastors, man. Awesome. Right? My grandfather wanted so badly to be a big deal. He associated us with those kinds of people, traitors and heretics, right? And then later, my grandfather kind of really went off the deep end, wrote a second book, and traced our lineage all the way back, I kid you not, to the Virgin Mary. Yeah, right. Like, like that's true. Like, you could even know that, right? Like, to- none of us believe. On the highway of life, my family took the psychopath, right? It was just like <laughs> crazy town. <laughs> right? I'm not supposed to laugh at my own joke. <laughs> Bad form. what was my grandfather looking at, right? He's looking at titles, fame, wealth, not his character. And since where you look is where you go, where did he go? He went to delusions of grandeur, no character, and nobody respected him. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't come just to get you into heaven, but to get heaven into you. So look ahead to who he is making you and what he's doing through you so that you go there. It's like an old parable. Some of you have heard two guys working at the side of a medieval cathedral which took centuries to build. Someone asks him, what are you doing? And one guy goes, Ugh, I'm just cutting stones. And the other guy looks at the cathedral and says, I'm building the cathedral. And so much of the time as we go through life, it feels like we're cutting stones. But you've got to keep the cathedral that God is building in your mind, in front of you, ahead of you. You know, the, 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 when, you're, when you're going through the trials as a parent, the babies that won't sleep, or, or the feelings of failure as a parent, or frustrations of dealing with parents that you don't think get you, or the ways that you try to make a difference by serving but wondering if it's doing any good, 
right? It can feel like cutting stones, but as you go through those, keep the cathedral that God is building in you in mind. Your, 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 the, the godly men and women your kids are going to be, the better marriage you're going to have, the way you are going to make a difference just by showing up and giving your most valuable asset your time. And remember this, noble character is never forged in one moment, but through a thousand little daily decisions not to fudge the expense account or tell a lie or go serve someone in need. That's what our character is built out of. Look that direction. Over the last few months, I've shared with you about my lifelong mentor, Steve, who has guided me for 30 years and was battling pancreatic cancer. And as some of you know, Steve died last Saturday. And for the week before that, I and many others were just kind of glued to his CaringBridge website for updates on his condition. And his blog, as he has gone through this, has helped so many people in pain, as he has described how God has met him in his suffering, and about how even in his last few days, even in his last few days, he could see how God was still at work shaping his character, making him fit for eternity. And he was president of a seminary, and when it looked like his last day had come, people from the seminary gathered to worship and pray for Steve and for his family. And as they did, he continued to love and serve them by sending them a text. And this is what his text said, on what will probably be my last day on this earth. Think about that. On what will probably be my last day on this earth, I want to send you all at the seminary my deepest love, gratitude, and joy, joyfully, Steve. Now, he did live two more days, but he's basically on his deathbed, still reaching out, still caring for others, still trying to make a difference from his deathbed, and he signs it joyfully, Steve. How does that happen? Well, here's how. You see, for that week, many of us all across the country, we were watching him, but his eyes were watching God. He was looking up and looking out, even on his deathbed, to serve others and looking forward to who God was making him to be. And he died surrounded by family and good friends who were praying and singing, in other words, worshiping as he went to the one to whom his whole life had always been. And the benediction I always use is the same one that he, he always used. It starts now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can ask or even imagine. And I know that the first words that Steve heard from his Savior and Lord were, Well done, good and faithful servant, so exceedingly abundantly and very well done. And I am not ready to be on this planet without him. But I am also so grateful for the 35-year role he played in my life, so inspired to be the man his life calls me to be and confident in Jesus to whom he always pointed me. We're talking about how we grow spiritually and emotionally, and he was one of the most spiritually mature people I've ever known, in part because he looked up and out and ahead. And I see Jesus all over this, in the way he faced cancer, in the way he died, Everywhere I see Jesus. So even though I am going to miss him because I see Jesus so much in this, I can honestly say it is well with my soul. Because when all you see is Jesus, it is always well with your soul. So where are you looking? And do you want to go there? And how can you look up and out and ahead starting this week? Prophet Isaiah says of God, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. So make this your daily prayer. Through it all, Lord Jesus, through the ups and downs of life, through the wins, through the losses, through it all, my eyes are on you. 
And because of that, it is well with me. Jesus, help us to do just that. Help us to keep our eyes on you, looking ahead. Jesus, we ask that you would guide us. We can't do this on our own. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, to know the peace and the strength and the power that you came to give us. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.